You're listening to WCT.FM, talk radio like no other. God, I love the station. And good morning, good evening, wherever you may be, around the nation, around the world. You are listening to WCET.com, WCETFM.com. That's triple W, WCETFM.com. This is the Supernatural Realm, and I'm your host, Tim Roxburgh. And my sidekick up in up in uh, New York area is Chip Reckenthal. We are on uh, Spotify, TuneIn, iHeartRadio, and all major uh, podcast apps. We're also on UPRNTalkRadio.com on Saturdays, 4 to 6 p.m. Eastern. They do the replay of this show, and they uh, recently added us to their podcast on on the uh, Paranormal Radio app. Chip, are you there, buddy? I sure am, my brother. Yes, every podcast known to humankind, we are on. That is the power and magic of Tim Roxbury and Supernatural Realm Radio. And boy, what a day we have, my brother, huh? <laughs> this is about as exciting as it gets. We got some gossip for you today, some juicy stuff, because I bet you guys didn't know that Timmy and I had a brother. I bet you guys didn't know that Timmy and I were brothers. We're, of course, brothers from another mother, because Timmy's mother's in the background going, I ain't taking credit for Chip. <laughs> 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 or blame, you know. Uh, but yes, this is this is our third twin. He's the way more successful twin but this is truly exciting because this is a beautiful guy. And you, listeners, our beautiful friends, have no idea how much this man has contributed to your lives to make them better. Not in that spiritualistic way, in an entertainment way, in a financial way, in, in all sorts of ways, even extending life. I mean, this guy is about as fascinating as it gets. Just so happens to have a father who is hugely known and famous. I know what that's like. <laughs> you know, there are benefits and some, uh, you know, anyway, we, we have to let you know who we got today because we're very, very proud uh, to have joining us Paul Hynek. Uh, if that name sounds familiar, he's the son of uh, Dr. J. Allen Hynek, who is uh, definitely featured, especially on the History Channel, on the hit show Project Blue Book, which he's a consultant of, by the way. But there's so much more than that. He's got decades of successful experience in finance, technology, and entertainment. He's a Wharton MBA, adjunct professor of finance, accounting, and Pepperdine University. My sister went there. I'll say that out loud. He was creator of the startup financial projection software that raised over a billion dollars for thousands of startups. He's got significant executive software and high-tech experience in U.S., Europe, and Asia. And uh, shout out to all our friends in all those locations listening in. Paul worked with numerous startups as either a board member, advisor, part-time CFO. Involved in the making of, ready for this, Avatar, Lord of the Rings, Planet of the Apes, 1010, Real Steel, little Hugh Jackman here, Warcraft, The Hobbit, Halo, Call of Duty, numerous other movies and games. You know, he's made them 
we've watched and played them. <laughs> so that's why we're all brothers here, <laughs> because watching and playing it, what we do. <laughs> uh, he led the successful acquisition of Giant Studios, ownership of its virtual production motion caption software. I mean, just goes from one cool thing to another here. Uh, with what some of the to James Cameron's uh, for Avatars two through five, he's a consultant on history's hit show Project Blue Book, as we mentioned, but that's worth a second mention. Also, the tech consultant on Maine versus Shark, on that was during the big Shark Week <laughs> over the summer, and that was like the was big cool. show. You know, everybody talked about that one. That was a buzz. He conceived and produced Surf Monkey, the world's first children's online service. <laughs> Uh, a director at business development at Bandai Digital Entertainment. Uh, he's in cryptocurrency and blockchain. I don't know anything about that stuff. I'll say that. that. <laughs> yeah. um, but, you know, that's fascinating. Everybody talks about that. Uh, he's the sought-after speaker, having emceed, keynoted, moderated, and spoken at South by Southwest, Wharton, Penn, Harvard, Mensa, Mensa, <laughs> say that again, Ross Science, Bill, Brink, and numerous tech and startup conferences and events. And of course, because of Supernatural Realm, you know, he's a consultant for Project Blue Book because his father just happened to be, you know, this, uh, I, what's that guy's name? Oh, gee, it's, I don't remember. <laughs> it doesn't matter because Paul Heineck is here today and our honored guest on Supernatural Realm. And we welcome him, but I'm going to turn it over to you, Timmy, to welcome our brother, Paul Heineck, to Supernatural Realm. Wow, Chip, this is incredible. We got <clears throat> Paul Heineck on. Uh, I don't know where to start. He's got a huge bio. <laughs> no, that right? Ooh, I know there, there's so many different things, but they've all, he's all he's touched our lives in ways that mm -hmm. you know we we just didn't know about, and it, you know it's so worthy of celebrating our brother. We should at least say hi to him. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the show, Paul. It's great to have you here on the on the supernatural realm. Yeah, happy to be here. And roughly half of what Chip said is true. <laughs> okay, yeah, <laughs> that's about right. It's based on a true story. <laughs> That's right. That's yeah. right. So it's all good, though. But still, I mean, it, it's fascinating. You know, I went to my bedroom today. So that's what I did. <laughs> he's, he's changing the world, you know. I, I also want to mention something, too. And I, I'm going to ask you about this, Paul, uh, a bit later on. That um, there was this thing about rejuvenation research. Paul is one of 12 people in the world, and you can tell me if this is half true or not, to regrow his thymus gland in the first FDA-approved procedure for life extension under the aegis of the Stanford Neuroscience Institute. Truth or half-truth? 100% uh, truth. Excellent. See, that's fascinating because, look, I mean, it's kind of spooky. We got... We got worries about, you know, uh, you could, you, in a few years, you'll be able to pick your kids, you know, mm -hmm. you want them smart, you want them athletic, you know, I mean, you know, workers, <laughs> leaders, you know, I mean, that's some scary stuff. It's, it seems like we're the last pure homo sapiens left, you know, in, in our lifetime. But this is different. See, this, I mean, this is something that can help sick people make them better, you know. That's a beautiful change to the world. Why did you get involved in that? Sorry, Timmy, I, I'm going to hog fine. the first question. <laughs> I'm just too fascinated in that. 
Uh, I got involved because I was speaking at um, the Brink Institute conference in Palm Springs, and there was another speaker there named Greg Fay, and he was talking about how he had just gotten approval for the FDA for the first trial that wasn't oriented at combating a specific disease, but rather at extending life, and he needed volunteers, and he started rattling off the criteria for for the control group, and uh, I, I, I was in from the very first second, and I rushed up to the stage, and I said, Greg, I know you have to do all kinds of testing, but I guarantee you, once you finish all your testing and all the dust settles, I will be in this trial, um, mm-hmm. and the trial proved very successful. We were published in, in uh, Aging Cell Magazine in September wow. uh, as the first to make to move the needle on what's called the Horvath clock. Steve Horvath is a renowned professor at UCLA who's likely going to win the Nobel Prize and has nice. the only method to really determine a person's actual age, which can be different from their chronological age right, if right. they suffer some kind of insult or something has helped. So this mm-hmm. is the first thing that actually measured a noticeable noticeable result on the what's called the Horvath clock. And so mm-hmm. it's, it was going tremendously well. And I'm now CFO with my good friends of the company. Yeah, I actually have a friend, and I hate to say this, who's got an app for that. <laughs> I'm not a particular fan of apps, but it it's kind of uh, a reinforcement uh, to, to the work of, of what your real age is. Uh, I'm close. I'm about three years off. I'm pretty impressed, which I think is good. Um, I, weird question. What was it about this? I'm not a doctor guy, really, but th- you were in from the second, from the start, like you said. What was it about Greg that made you trust him? Well, Greg Fay, and if listeners are interested, his last name is F-A-H-Y, is one of the most brilliant people I've ever met. And he's oh. also very soft-spoken. And so I quickly gleaned that when he's making what sound like rather fabulous claims, they were based on very strong research footing. um, And he just won me over. And during the trial, it was the most comforting feeling because he, we were tested up the wazoo on this high tech Stanford instruments and lots of blood tests. And Greg would send all of us trial members the equivalent of four or five page emails, carefully pouring over all sorts of indicators for our health, like having the best doctor you've ever had spend more time with you than anyone ever has, not in service of maintaining your health, but of radically improving it. It was just just a tremendous feeling. And from the very get-go, I felt comfortable with Greg and have come to know and respect him all the more ever since. Excellent. Yeah, I got to, uh, you know, I'm going to try to give his <clears throat> number or something, talk to him sometime. Yeah, but, I, I can, I'm happy to... To, to welcome you into the fold. And for me, there, you know, people say, well, there's there's a risk at taking whatever cocktail we took for it, sure. but I want to live forever. So the risk for me is if I don't do something different, well, then I'm probably going to die. And I don't want to do that. So there seem to be very little risk to this. And I need to be somewhat aggressive in what I pursue to have a different outcome. Why why, why the thymus gland of, of all the <clears throat> options? Okay, for- right. So the thymus gland is located behind your breastplate, and it's what creates your T cells, which are basically your white blood cells, which is, in essence, your immune system. And T cell stands for thymus-enabled cells. When you get older, after you turn 20, 
your thymus involutes or shrinks to the tune of about 3% per year in everybody, man and woman. Mm -hmm. uh, and so when you get older and older, it no longer produces what are called naive T-cells, which are really effective at fighting novel pathogens that your body hasn't seen before. Right. But when you get really old, especially in your mid-70s and 80s, your thymus is really not that effective anymore, and you're more prone to cancer and other diseases. So right. there have been a lot of studies done uh, you know, by my friend Aubrey de Grey and others looking at, well, how do we extend life? And it's widely regarded by, both by humans and AI searches of the literature that the first of numerous difficult things to do is make sure that the immune system is robust because it doesn't really matter what else you do. If you get sick and die, you can't live longer. Hmm. So right. the thymus gland, in our view, is really the first and most important step in promoting radical life extension. And then there are other things that you have to do as well. Yeah, uh, on that, because uh, I don't know, kind of a weird thing. One more weird question and I'm gonna turn it over to Timmy. But, but on that note, I had this thing about all these antibacterial soaps and uh, lotions and stuff. Because, you know, we when we were kids, I'm old, so when we were kids, we used to play in the dirt, you know. <laughs> We'd go right in there, mud and, you know, all this crazy stuff. And, right. you know, that's right. what the immune system is there for, you know. So we were training our immune system sharp. And uh, we just feared, my wife and I, that all this antibacterial stuff that we use yeah. kind of spoils that immune system. Did you guys discuss that at all? Well, that's sort of the backdrop for this. And what you're talking about is, is broadly called the hygiene hypothesis. That ah. if you if you use antibacterial stuff everywhere, you're not giving the body a chance to have exposure to things and fight it off. Mm -hmm. So um, it's a little bit different from what we did, but I, I, I strongly believe in the hygiene hypothesis. And there are some people that go to extreme lengths for that. Um, mm -hmm. But you really need to have exposure to the elements. I mean, we're, we're animals and you need to mm -hmm. have exposure to the real world. Exactly. Um, so that's... So that's the last weird question before we start talking about something normal like UFOs. Is that I, what you're we, yeah, No, yeah. no. We, we don't know what normal is here. <laughs> it's supernatural, so there's nothing natural or normal today. Uh, but I'm going to turn it over to Timmy because his, his questions aren't quite as uh, strange and they're more precise. Tim. Paul, Paul for, for people that aren't familiar with your dad's work, can you give a, a, a backstory about... Um, your dad's work and how I got involved with the UFO phenomena? Sure, sure. So my father was a little Czech boy from Chicago who um, contracted scarlet fever as a little kid, read a very complex book on astronomy and was sold. And so was an astronomer in his heart and then his career ever since. Uh, during World War II, he worked on the proximity fuse, which helped stop the V-1 bombs over London uh, in the 50s, under the direction of Fred Whipple, he was the director of Operation Moonwatch, which placed observatories all around the world, and then he manned them with citizen science teams to be able to track what they then called artificial satellites. So they were the team that was first to spot Sputnik and to then track its whereabouts. And my father's giving national press briefings and briefing Congress on what this new era of the space race meant. Um, mm -hmm. He was also an astronomer at Ohio State and Harvard and Northwestern. Um, and in the late 40s, he was at Ohio State, and he was asked by the Air Force to study what they then called flying saucers. Mm -hmm. 
Mm. <clears throat> he thought, well, okay, this won't take long. You know, I'm patriotic. The Air Force is asking me to help. Should be a couple weekends work. I don't think he had any idea that this would be something that his son would be talking about on the radio 50 years later. Um, so he decided he got involved. He, he didn't think there was anything to flying saucers. He thought it was a bunch of post-war bunkum, like a lot of mainstream scientists did. Mm -hmm. But, you know, funny thing happens. Uh, on the way to solving all the cases, he came to realize in his mind that there was a legitimate phenomena nipping at his heels. So he did what a good scientist does and tries to make a classification system to study it. So he came up with Close Encounters of the First Kind, Second Kind, Third Kind, and Spielberg did the movie Close Encounters of the Third Kind, based on my father's work, bought the rights to the title, made my father the technical advisor, and gave him a cameo role in the movie. Um, and people often say that he went from a skeptic to a believer, but I like to think that a believer and belief aren't terms that scientists traffic with much. He came to accept the data that there was a phenomena there. And where they come from, that's a whole other kettle of fish, but that there was certainly enough evidence to make someone who studies the phenomena, who cares to study the phenomena, come away and say, yeah, I can't just sweep this all under the rug. Wow. So he was called in to try to debunk the phenomena then? Is that the reason Absolutely. why he was notified? Because Project Blue Book, from the inception, and certainly after 1953 with the Robertson panel and the 4602nd Air Intelligence Service Squadron, was really more of a PR exercise to tamp down public hysteria and to manufacture answers as opposed to search for the truth. Mm -hmm. Is it true that in the first series that they, they were afraid he was getting a little too close and finding the answers? In the first series? Yeah, of, of Project Blue Book. <clears throat> in the season? Uh, mean first season? First season, yes. Uh, I'm not sure how to answer that. I mean, um, the the first season was, uh, the structure was, there was a real reported case, mm -hmm. whether or not the case actually happened is, is a different matter, but a real reported case that my father's character, my TV dad, um, and Michael Malarkey's character would go and investigate. Um, I, I'm not sure what you mean about whether they were felt they were getting too close to the it's, truth or not. To finding out that there was actually something really going on with, with the <clears throat> UFO phenomenon. It wasn't just... Oh, yeah, it wasn't just... A, it wasn't just... Decided that there, that, there is, that there are UFOs and that they are fact? Right. Yeah, so, you know, um, David O'Leary, the creator, and Sean Jablonski, the showrunner, are both big fans of UFOs, mm -hmm. as was... Arturo Interian, who was the network executive of history, um, and a fabulous guy, they all are students of ufology and have encyclopedic knowledge to the point where I tried to test them on some of the more arcane aspects, and they just came back and said, is that all you got, Heineck? So, you know, they wanted to present... Yeah, I mean, that, that's how they are. They wanted to present the subject in a respectful way because they think it's important for people to know and the vehicle of a show that has true elements and then dramatizes it helps widen the tent and open the discussion for more people than a pure on documentary would do. 
So mm -hmm. they like to sort of dance the line of coming up to UFOs, explaining some of them away, and leaving some of the other ones there just hanging. Because in life, I think there's a lot of scientists who fall into one of these two camps. And that is, I'd rather have questions I can't answer than answers I can't question. So in the show, they present that. Here's some things, you know, you can come up with whatever conclusion you want. They could be aliens, maybe they're not. It's certainly something mysterious, apart from the things they explain away, and let's have the discussion. Mm -hmm. I think that's really the tone of the show. Yeah, that's, uh, that sounds accurate, I think. You know, that to leave it wide open for anybody's belief, personal belief, preconception, or bias or conception, and, and you know, mm -hmm. uh, get a little soapy with the characters, which is good. Uh, you know, I can't stay out of the doghouse without saying this before I turn it back to Timmy, but my, my wife wants you to tell Aiden Gillen how much she loves him, and, you know, she'll love him forever. Does he... Uh, did he have any opinions about uh, the UFOs and ufology before taking on the role of your father? Well, you well first I say that your, your wife obviously has good taste in men. Um, <laughs> yeah, I know, right? <laughs> uh, Aiden is a, is a, let me just say this, Aiden is, a, is an amazing actor. I remember I had one friend say, oh my God, Paul, why would you cast him as your father? And I said, well, first of all, I'm not making the casting decisions. And secondly, the fact that you have such an emotional reaction shows that he's a wonderful actor. He is oh, not yeah. going around slitting people's throats <laughs> and you know, high court drama around the world. He's a very nice, quiet man from Dublin who just is an extremely versatile actor. Um, <clears throat> I've yes, come to know very versatile. Well. Yeah, yeah and, and I'll tell you, it's not super creepy at all to have the, the Game of Thrones supervillain play your TV dad. Right, yeah, right. And he's, he's a wonderful actor, and we've talked. We've gotten to know each other fairly well, and we've talked quite a lot. And he did a lot of research and talking with my brother Joel and me and others, and looking online to really grasp the sort of essential core of my father's character, so that he could use that as a foundation, layer on his own artistic interpretation, and then keep that sort of authenticity going into the highly stretched circumstances of the show. I think he's nailed it because you mentioned, you know, the questions without answers or answers without questions. And we, we've talked to a lot of scientists and astrologers and mm -hmm. cosmologists and you know, uh, astronomers. And, and, you know, I mean, there's a lot of mysteries there, but he's captured the essence of that mystery because that is the goal. I mean, on a very small scale, when we do our little paranormal investigations, you know, we have to be concerned with bias going into an investigation, you know? Yeah. Are we looking to prove something that we're starting to believe, or do we have to completely take that out of the question and just tick all the boxes? And he's captured yeah. that. Yeah, and I think uh, Laura Minnell, who, who is my TV mom, has done the same on, on her end. And uh, you know, it's very gratifying to see, and this was planned, to see her emergence as a more and more important character in her own right in ufology in the second season. Yeah, plus, you know... I mean, it's good to expand on, on they have some wonderful woman characters on that show, and I'd love to see that, you know. I'm rooting yeah. for, the, for the ladies, you know, and uh, yeah, she's doing a remarkable job. She's very layered, too, I think, you know, as an actress. Yes, um, and, and she, I had, I've talked with her quite a lot, and she also talked with my sister to get my sister's vantage point on my mom. But it, yeah, it's just quite nice to see her, um, and there will be much more from her to come. Yeah, on, on, on a personal level, 
because they seem to take some of the baseline and embellish, you know, they, they create mysteries or get soapy with certain things. Do you feel that they've gone too far? Are you comfortable with where you're going with that? Do you feel there are inaccuracies there, or is that just TV? Um, yeah, it, the, the show doesn't portray itself as historically factual. Mm-hmm. You know, the show, especially in the first season, they would they would have the chirons that say to learn more about the actual Flatwoods monster case or this or that case come to history.com after the show. Right, so, because there are bases of actual history there. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and so they're not portraying this as completely factually accurate. This is a dramatization. And there are sort of three layers of information. One is, yes, my mother and father existed. The Air Force characters are pretty accurate amalgamations of existing people. Okay. And especially in the first season, all these cases happen. In the second season also, we, you know, there's, there's Area 51 and Roswell and other real reported cases. So that part is all historically accurate, at least in terms of reports. Okay, the but these are your parents that are being displayed here as characters. Yeah. And are you, are yeah. you comfortable with that? And is some of that yeah. uh, accurate or does some of that, you know, make you want to claw the TV screen? <laughs> I mean, uh, well, inquiring the, the minds want to know. Is visualizations of things that are reported. You know, when you read a report, you don't see things. But in a show, you can actually show what people reported. So that's the next layer. And then the layer after that is where they stretch things even beyond and add another layer of dramatization of things that didn't happen at all. So it's kind of mixed. And it's an interesting construct. And to your question about am I comfortable as a family member, yes, I am. Because the broad strokes of the show are about a scientist who doesn't care for a phenomena who examines it, becomes to realize that there's something there and gets naturally curious and drags his wife along the way. That's the broad strokes of the show. And that's what happened in real life. And there are respectful portrayals of my parents and others involved. So yes, I'm comfortable. And I, Plus, and I know- Plus played by great actors too. <laughs> Gotta yeah. say that again. And it's, it's, like I said, it's not presented as a completely historically accurate show, which is not the purpose of the show. So yes, I'm, I, I feel very good about the show. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm kind of relieved to hear that on a, on a personal note, you know, because, uh, you know, I mean, that's the kind of stuff we never get to hear about. You know, I mean, yeah. how you feel about your family members being portrayed on mm-hmm. television years yeah. later, you know. Even in a movie that's that's supposedly an accurate biopic, they, they stretch the truth a lot because the truth doesn't fit into, uh, you know, a five act arc for mm-hmm. a TV show or a three act yeah. arc for a movie. Sure. So Especially you know, that third act where yeah, everything goes wrong and you got to blow it up. Things are changed. Characters are, are condensed. That's just things that you have to do. But it doesn't change the essential accurate or the essential authenticity of what's being portrayed. That's, that sounds fair. What was it like growing up with your dad as, as a young kid? Super cool. <clears throat> Super cool. You know, um, yeah, I really didn't suck, you know, <laughs> my, I mean, I know you're a finance guy. My dad's a finance guy. We didn't see you. If I did, but he didn't, you know, so yeah, not, not as cool as yours. Yeah, it was, uh, it was super fun. I mean, <clears throat> UFOs was one part of it, but my dad was, you know, essentially a scientist. So that's mm-hmm. how he approached the world. And we would have other professors from Northwestern over at our house all the time. Um, I grew up, my whole neighborhood was 
was was kids and their and their parents were professors at Northwestern. So I grew up in academia, <clears throat> and then we had sort of the icing on the cake, which was UFOs. So you know we'd have Travis Walton over for dinner. I talked to Calvin Parker on the phone. Father Gill came, and we would go to conferences and eclipse cruises and the like. So it was it was a wonderful childhood. Sounds like it. <laughs> wow, <laughs> incredible. Yeah, take take me now, Lord. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I mean, in comparison, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I was happy with my uh, upbringing, but it wasn't half as cool as that. <laughs> How about you, Tim? No, not really. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're not worthy. We're not worthy. Yeah, go ahead, Timmy. <laughs> yeah, you got a follow-up question for that trip? Oh boy, where, where do I even start? Um, yeah, I guess I I got the weird one again, you know, <laughs> because you know. My father was a successful guy. I'm going to ask about that again. You know, but this you're on a different level because yours was so much more public. I mean, yours was worldwide, right? So, and I know what it's like when you, oh my God, you know, you're Hal Reichenthal's kid, and it's all of a sudden it's like you're this paper mache now, <laughs> and he's this like cartoon or legend or myth, you know. So he's real. So he's actually lives, you know. <laughs> It's just kind of that weird thing. So there's that element, too, because I understand what it's like to be the, the son of a, a famous father. And so there are benefits to that, and, and there are some non-benefits to that. Uh, you really became your own person. You've got all, all these incredible things in your tenure, which are uh, so commendable. Um, it was part of that drive. Uh, toward finance, you know, toward toward entertainment, toward all these other things, toward the cellular regrowth of thymus glands and uh, all these other things that you've done as your own person uh, that really stands out to us, uh, part of the, the thing that drove you. It's a weird question, to, you know, to be your own man. Um, you know, my father was a very focused astrophysicist. My sister um, is a nurse midwife, and my brothers are electrical engineers. Uh, my my oldest, my my middle brother Joel, uh, is an electrical engineer who went in the movie business straight out of college and has an Oscar for visual effects. So, wow! And my younger brother is a very accomplished electrical engineer. My oldest brother has a PhD from MIT in heat transfer and nuclear engineering. So they're all super focused on a given career. I am much more, ooh, look at that shiny ball over there. Let me go chase that. Yeah, that's why we're brothers. That explains, <laughs> my, that explains my peripatetic career. Yeah, but academia probably had something to do with it. I mean, yeah. you're around all these smart people. What, what Your brother won an Oscar for visual effects for what? Uh, for What Dreams May Come. And he really? Oh, my God, Oscar. we love that movie. Should have won an Oscar for He should have won an Oscar for The Predator as well. Oh. And also with a longer explanation for the Matrix. Oh, my God. Wow. Well, I'll tell your brother he's part of this family, too. <laughs> oh, that is, uh, boy, you got like the coolest family in the world, I think. Yeah, what dreams may come is a fascinating film. Predator is how I, you know, we just, uh, Timmy and I, we've had like the, uh, uh, it, yeah. Paranormal encounters, and that's the way that I've seen some of these things that I can only describe as paranormal, kind of like that predator thing, <laughs> you know. 
And the Matrix is on ultra high def now, which is awesome. And that's all I'm going to say about that. But you know, wow, what a, what a family! I think, wow, Timmy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Paul, without giving too much of the meat and potatoes away, what what kind of information um, did your dad write in the Heineck UFO report? Well, <clears throat> Heineck UFO report is um, a book designed to take a curious open reader from zero, meaning they don't believe in UFOs or they don't care, to arriving at a point where they'll say, you know what, there's there's something going on here. There's too much of a pattern. There's too much commonality. There are too many cases with corroborating witnesses, radar, physical traces, uh, and the like to walk away from it. And it's really one of the most important questions to face mankind. Are we alone in the universe or are there other extraterrestrials or perhaps interdimensionals visiting us? That's something I would really like to know. And so my father, as a scientist, viewed his job at going to the fringes of accepted science, taking a flashlight and shining a light just a little bit farther into that abyss of the unknown and trying to establish some order so that the boundaries of science could be expanded. Did he utilize uh, the, you know, the Einstein general uh, theory of relativity in, in any of his personal work? Because now you're talking interdimensional, you know, which is a lot more progressive than I, than I figured, even though, you know, this guy was uh, really tuned, tuned in. I mean, about as tuned in. But then you get into all the questions of string theory and <laughs> All that same, even Einstein, you know, had was working on the fifth uh, dimension, you know, somewhere with gravity and electromagnetic uh, uh, meet, you know, with um, uh, spooky action at distance, uh, quantum mechanics. He was actually working on that. Um, did he did he follow any of the Einstein stuff? Do you do you happen to know? Yeah, a weird question, but you know, all dimensions you get into. As an astrophysicist, sure, that's that's part of his toolkit. Mm -hmm. um, one of the reasons he started to doubt that the extraterrestrial hypothesis explained all of the good UFO reports was that if you follow Einsteinian principles, it's very difficult to get here from so far away without right. spending a whole lot of time to do it. Except maybe an Einstein-Rosen bridge, which is, uh, you know, in our physics, Thomas impossible. Says. But in some advanced civilization, hypothetically speaking, their physics would be much more advanced. and uh, Or Stargate or, you know, whatever, however you want to term, you know, this long-term travel in, in short time uh, type of thing. Uh, so I don't even know what the question was there. <laughs> yeah, Thomas, Thomas uh, Fusco says about the Einstein-Rosen bridge in, in his book. You know, and, and you know, could that be a uh, a shortcut for something like a UFO or extraterrestrial to travel from point A to point B? You know, who knows? Yeah. Did you, did, well, do, you, do you have any faith in wormholes? Do you know? I mentioned that my brothers were engineers. I was a French major, so I'll duck away from that question. Okay. 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 Yeah. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um. Yeah. We've got. 
another weird question, and then back to him. But on 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 this line of, of thinking, because we've got some friends at the Dr. Edgar Mitchell Foundation for Research in Extraterrestrial and Extraordinary Encounters Free Foundation, um, and because Edgar Mitchell, the other six man to walk the moon, came back a changed man with a changed perspective, he started to think about consciousness as some sort of part of the energy forms, uh, or perhaps a subtle force on energy or mass. Did your father ever uh, tread into consciousness as an energy form? Because some of the progressive thinkers in cosmology, you know, and astronomy uh, have gone there, but it might have been after his time. Absolutely. Did he tread there? He jumped in the deep end of the pool <laughs> with his dear friend and colleague, Jacques Vallée. No kidding. Oh, okay. <laughs> Allow me to say, duh. Yeah, Yeah, you know, because um, they have to travel a vast distance. They have to, you know, kind of tweak Einstein in the nose. We have very sensitive instruments to detect things coming and entering, coming and leaving the atmosphere. Um, And we don't have the reports of those that correlate with UFO sightings. Plus, a lot of UFOs exhibit properties that don't comport with our physics. And we've seen Mm -hmm. these in some of the Navy-released videos, which is just amazing. So, yeah. my father, you know, they don't they don't rush to an explanation. Scientists don't rush to say, oh, I want this explanation. Rather, they often rule things out. Mm-hmm. And the sort of knee jerk traditional, especially Hollywood idea mm-hmm. of extraterrestrials doesn't really seem to hold water. Now, for me, <clears throat> I believe in the concept of singularity. I believe, like Ray Kurzweil, nice. that we'll have our own singularity around about the year 2036, mm-hmm. which is when artificial intelligence will become self-aware. If another civilization has the means to come here in a recreational fashion, I think that means they necessarily must have already had their own singularity. If so, there's no reason for them to come here. They're not worried about our nuclear capabilities. They don't need our gold, our water, or our concept of human love. So there's no absolutely no reason, and there are so many trillions of planets for them to go to. So for them to find us is one challenge. But for why they would come here, I just have a problem with that. So the idea of more exotic ideas like people from or entities from another dimension or from our or and or from our collective unconscious start to explain questions like why they would come here, why they would care about us and how they would even know about us in the first place. Yeah, we, we talk with somebody, somebody I think was the uh, with the, the guy who was one of the first persons to report the Roswell incident. I can't remember his name. Mm. I'm having a senior moment on that. You remember that, Tim. We interviewed him. He said that in all of his experiences and the experiences of the foundation of that uh, that guy, we're going to look him up. <laughs> Tom Carey? Uh, what? Thomas Carey? Yeah. Yeah, but he was with the foundation of, of somebody who was well-known. in Stan Freeman? No, no, oh. no. I'll, I'll look it up. Um, uh, but the he he said, in his opinion, and he has seen a lot of uh, you know UFOs. He has had some contact experiences, and it was his rather stringent belief, and it surprised us. Uh, but it was very stringent belief that there is no animosity or malice in these uh, non-terrestrial entities that are visiting. In whichever way, whether physical, non-physical, interdimensional, um, but he was—he was pretty adamant about it, and that really surprised me. Um, 
Do you, do you have any feelings about his way of seeing that? Well, if you look at the totality of UFO reports, there are abductions that are reported. Mm -hmm. There has been some aggressive behavior. But by and large, yes, I, I would agree that most of what we've seen in the reports, mind you, mm -hmm. of, of visitors, say, A, terrestrials, has been benevolent or neutral. Did, uh, in these reports, when your father did research, if he got to talk to people, did he ever ask for subjective experiences, whether on or off the record? Because most reports generally are about, about objective things. That's kind of a well, weird question again. Well, I don't know. I mean, they're, they're all subjective if they're reported by a witness. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Yeah, but I mean, in documentation, it, it's usually they keep the subjective stuff out, you know, and most of the research that I've seen uh, up until, say, maybe five years ago uh, has been really about objective things. You know, this happened, anything that they could prove or anything that they could come close to proving was the only accepted material to be documented in a lot of research studies, but probably not anything to do with anybody that you've been <laughs> But things that I've come across, and, and lately you're seeing uh, more factions of reporting on contacting experiences that include subjective experiences. So they monitor that in different ways, and it's a much fuller study now. I think that's more. Well, I, I think we need to sort of redefine the words because if a witness is reporting it, it's all subjective. And as part of their subjective account, it can include things that could perhaps be verified like it happened at this time, or um, my friend saw it as well. But then there are the sort of maybe the meta elements, I think what you're getting at, Chip. Yeah, I uh, am. Things that um, maybe that they feel that were communicated to them during the experience, or mm -hmm. before, during, or after the experience. And that's one of the reasons my father, I think, called this first book on the, on the topic, The UFO Experience, because they're oftentimes, and we saw this in Close Encounters, and we see it in Project Blue Book, and in many of the cases, that the witnesses report having dimensions of an overall experience that go well beyond just seeing a craft in the sky. Right. You know, and yeah, some telepathic communicate. They feel spiritual afterwards. I mean, a lot of different things. I don't know if you're comfortable answering this question. Have you personally, or at least to feel as though you have had any contacting experiences through all the work you've done in this field? And if you don't want to answer that, we've got no problem with that. Uh, I grew up with UFOs as a family business, so there's really nothing you can ask me about UFOs that I'm uncomfortable talking about. <laughs> okay. Um, I will say, I will answer no and yes. Hmm. No, I don't believe I've seen a UFO. No, I don't believe I've had, um, <clears throat> yeah, I'll say I don't believe I've seen a UFO. Yes, with a longer answer, I believe I may have made contact with a terrestrial intelligence. Excellent. Yeah, we feel the same way about that. And we say that out loud all the time. So you're you're at home here. Um, and, and yeah, it, it's kind of a thing that is so beyond your expectation, preconception or belief, you have to think about it for a long time, <laughs> or it comes in ways that you can't explain to anybody around you. Even the people that are in it with you sometimes, because there's just so unusual and, and you kind of have to stew on it for a while. Does, does that sound accurate to your personal experience? No. No, my experience, I mean, we had UFO ornaments on the Christmas tree. So 
talking about UFOs has never been awkward or taboo for me. That's right. Cool. No, but it's contact, though. And, and there, there's no aspect of the UFO phenomena that's been off limits or <laughs> uncomfortable for me. That's okay, awesome. fair enough. Did your dad have any contact with beings, uh, aliens, UFO um, craft or anything like that at a location or air base? Or would he describe it the same way you described yours? My mom, my mom used to refer to my younger brother and I as aliens in our teens, but I think that's about the total thing. <laughs> that's fair. Yeah, that's my married life right there. <laughs> my wife considers me out of this world, uh, always in a good way. But, I mean, if he were to have some sort of contact he experienced, the way you described yours is like the with an asterisk next to it, you know, mm -hmm. with yeah. the, some uncertainty, which is fair, mm -hmm. uh, because based on our experiences. Uh, would your dad explain his the same way that you would explain yours? If, if I, I don't uh, know that my father had any experiences that he would consider contacts with any type of other intelligence. Okay, that's the uh, 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 scientist in him, or just the way it is. I think that's just the honest witness. Mm -hmm. Okay, All right. yeah. Sorry, I just thought that was a fair question. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Chip. It almost yeah. seems like Paul does have some sort of connection with the supernatural. I guess. And even a, even better, he's in a light way of putting it. Yeah. And he's got great connection to supernatural realm, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome here anytime. Yeah. Uh, but I, I, you know, it's just, wow. I, I, I wish I knew what it was like growing up like that. Like when you're in high school, could you talk to your friends about it? Were you like the weird guy? Did, did you have to, the freak label because you were working in this stuff? I mean, back in the day, it wasn't cool to talk about this stuff. You know, I was there. <laughs> um uh, did that affect your uh, social life in high school at all? Uh, I had a street label because I had long hair and smoked pot. But, well, I uh, did too, but I was with, you know, everybody else that had long hair. And smoked. Well, you were in a, okay. and my father, for the for my friends or people at school who knew about him, they thought it was super cool. You know, yeah. I, I've been asked by people, did you, did you have to not talk about this? Were you ashamed? Did you suffer ridicule? Hell no. It was cool as hell. People <laughs> loved it. Wow. And uh, awesome. what area did you grow up? Like what state? Let's just say. Oh, I grew up in Evanston, Illinois, right by Northwestern University. Nice. Oh, go you, man. That's beautiful. Yeah, I'm a little job in Albany, New York. I would have taken Evanston any time. Sorry, Albany. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you invite them to your, to your area, but you like them, so you won't, right, Chip? Yeah, well, you know, look, I, I mean, I think Illinois, because there's a lot of wild energy in Illinois, just like Pennsylvania, where Timmy lives, or Ohio, you got a lot of guys from Ohio. You know, there are certain energies in these locations where there are a lot of people around that are either, you know, with you on that or pick things up about it, you know, and get interested in that sort of thing. That's cool. Yeah. Was it good for getting chicks? <laughs> you don't have to answer that one. <laughs> Um, Chip, yeah. Chip, uh, with the guests that we we have spoken with here, it almost seems like there is a certain areas of of the country that have uh, more activity than others. Sort of like a hotspot. 
Well, it's just some of them more with UFOs and paranormal. Yeah, you right. know, I mean, there are areas, especially far east coast or west coast, that are very paranormal. Uh, west coast, though, has a lot of UFO. You know, I mean, if you look at uh, New Mexico, uh, Colorado, you know, I, I mean, they're just areas of far west. Uh, in the east, it's a lot of paranormal because of the history, you know. Mm. Or Texas, a lot of paranormal because of the history, Alamo and all that stuff. I mean, things that predated us coming here, you know, still linger in the air. But there are just states and a lot of Midwestern states where there's a, just so it seems that it's more focused on UFO kind of energy. Um, are you are you a paranormalist at all, Paul? Did you ever follow like uh, ghosts and spirits and things like that? Hell yes! All <laughs> awesome. right, our man, our man. Um, did you cool. ever? Did yeah, you ever? I mean, I, I grew up. I grew up in a scientific household that talked about UFOs all the time. So right. it's not like I'm going to say ghosts. Well, that's pretty far fetched, right? I mean, right. I, the world. You know, here's the facts. Mainstream science acknowledges that 95% of the, of the universe is dark matter and dark energy, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, and black, just... <laughs> holes are, black holes are not part of that, and we have very imperfect understanding of black holes. So mm -hmm. we don't even understand 5% of the universe, and we have zero understanding of 95% of the universe. So yeah, for because... me, to categorically rule out this or that phenomena without studying it is really intellectually dishonest. Now. I'm also very careful to believe things I want to be true. Mm -hmm. I would love there to be life after death. I mm -hmm. would love to communicate with dead spirits, such as my parents. I would love to do that. But I'm very careful to believe that just because I want to, because it's very easy to fall into that trap. Now, right. um, I've had interesting experiences in my life. They don't raise to the level of convincing me flat out that there are ghosts and other things. Because, I, like I said... I have a very high bar for things I want to be true. Well, you but have to. I've been, I've seen a lot of things. I've talked to a lot of people. My father would take me to ESP conferences. Cool. And I think the world is full of, let's call it magic. And it's, it's our job to, like my father, take that flashlight out to the fringes and discover a little bit more of it. Yeah. Well, our, our best friends have been, you know, I've been in for 40 years to paranormal, Timmy, uh, multi-decade, you know, at least 20 and um, we have found over the years in, in getting very involved in this and, and trying to find answers, you know, which is almost impossible, that really the, the people that we consider best in this field of ours are, are handle it just like you do. You know, they have no expectation personally. They look at the bar. It's about the bar. It's about the, ticking all the boxes, you know, seeing, yeah. seeing what can be explained away first. You know, and the very, very, very last resort is to go there, you know, and even if some of them believe in it. You know, these so. topics are, are very strange and are, are, are subject to so much interpretation. I mean, you could have identical twins, let's say Bianca and Amy, who could see the same thing and come away thinking very different things about what they saw. Right. You know, it's like if you take reports of an automobile accident, which is unfortunately about as prosaic as you get. No, you but can it's get wildly different accounts of that. Yeah, that's the bar. You could also go to three different spirit mediums. A lot of those would be our friends, by the way, and get three different accounts, even though they had 
uh, similar contact with the people that you wanted contacted and come away with three different insights of that or three different expressions of what they're saying to you. So, yeah, it's very, it's a, it's a very, well, sketchy is not a good word. We do have some, some very bad practitioners out there, which kind of give us a good ones, all a bad name. Yeah. Uh, but, but at the same time, it really comes down to, you know, it, just like you said, witnessing a car accident, eight people say the same thing and come away with different approaches to what different they opinions. saw because they all have their personal truths. And now in this day and age, it's all about personal truths because there's no actual truths. You know, they're, yeah. they're taking truth away from us. So it's become our personal opinion has to be our personal truth now. And it makes it even harder in, in sciences like this. Would you agree with that? Well, I mean, when you're, when you're trying to get to the bottom of ineluctable mysteries like this that have evaded us for all of our history, you, you make incremental progress. Mm -hmm. And now, with the fractured nature of, of people into tribes and fake news and all this, <laughs> the idea of a disclosure in UFOs has almost lost its weight. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. um, you can well, look this at disclosure and what I had for lunch almost you lost its weight. I mean, disclosure is a process than an event, and that episodes in disclosure have already happened, and that we're waiting for confirmation. But then comes the acceptance of the population. And if you had a white, uh, a UFO land on the lawn of the White House, and it's filmed and shown on on the news at eleven, a significant portion of the population probably still wouldn't believe it. So oh, yeah. it's a very calculus now for what people will believe and what they won't believe yeah and, and bias has a great uh, great amount to do with reality now because it's become really personal reality there was a in the free foundation that i aforementioned uh, there was this uh, correlation that they found and i don't know if you've come across this or not but uh, with near-death experiences and out-of-body experiences and their correlation with either paranormal or UFO or uh, non-terrestrial sightings or events. Um, had you ever heard anything like that? Uh, uh, not specifically, but I I knew Raymond Moody um, as oh, a child. Wow. Um, wow. And been very interested in the phenomena. Um, yeah, you know, I, I mentioned the thymus. I was at a conference. Well, I was at a conference my father talked to, or that. My father lectured out that I met Raymond Moody and Ingo Swan, um, Robert Monroe, uh, uh, Alex Tanner, all these uh, Olga Warall, all these all these well-known people. And I had a wonderful encounter with Olga Warall, who is a well-known psychic healer. Right. Um, I was going to see her speak at the conference, and I was very excited. Uh -huh. And I was in a, in the hallway. And I got in the elevator, and the elevator door is closing. And I see this elderly woman way down the hallway way far enough that it's perfectly acceptable for me to let the elevator door close but i held it open i waited for her and and she said well thank you young man i said i'm going to see olga warall where are you she said oh yes i am too i said well come with me because i i have some seats saved in the front row you can sit with me she says oh that's very nice so we go to the auditorium it's packed we walk to the front i said here you can sit here with me she says oh i'm okay and she walks on stage and that was her <laughs> olga warall wow oh, that's hilarious we're not worthy. Oh man! Uh, thank you for holding the elevator door, though. I I just love stuff like that. I'm sorry. To, for yeah, you me. never know. Never know. 
Yeah. And just some of the things we hear, I mean, because, you know, you've been in this a long time, but, you know, you you have, and I know objective, you know, we already kind of dismissed those kind of terms, mm -hmm. but it's a, it's a nice generalization of the way you're looking at this, which is the way you should be looking at this. We're, you know, and something we're, we're trying to help along, you know, bias is a damning thing. I mean, they're even finding that in, in the experiments with atomic particles, you know, you can't have any bias in the studies. You can't have the scientists even looking at this stuff. They can't even be in the same room anymore. So, you know, with that said, we understand why, you know, you really have to have this razor sharp focus and we have to thank you for that, brother. Forward mm -hmm. to uh, No, go ahead, Paul. Oh, yeah. Um, I don't have a razor sharp focus. I have a widely diffused, overexcited focus. Okay. Down rabbit holes, up mountaintops, everywhere you can imagine. And I have a very, but I'm getting more focused now with my interests because you have to pursue them longer. Mm -hmm. And yeah. so, you know, there's one particular strand of extra of a terrestrial provenance that I'm particularly passionate about. But mm. um, yeah, I'm just, I mean, I grew up inculcated by both my parents with the notion of learn about this world because there's some really cool ass shit in it. Yeah, there, there really is. So what, what is your focus then? Where, where are you? Where are you? Where is the shining ball God? And you get that from your brother, Chip. Yeah, I'll, I'll take the blame for that one. <laughs> and I'm so sorry. But, uh, you know, where, where's your focus uh, in there, in the eight terrestrial? And also, um, what is your focus now? Uh, I mean, where are, what are you working on now? Uh, and all the things you've been doing, you know, the, with the yeah. rejuvenation or finance or uh, helping people build their own businesses, you know, uh, grants to the National Science Foundation. <laughs> a lot of, a lot of nice uh, shining balls yeah, there. Yeah, it's like, where, uh, where, where are you headed with that, you know? Uh, well, I'm still juggling a few of those balls, but one of the things I'm, I'm very happy to say is that I've recently accepted the position as chairman of the advisory council for MUFON, which, as you know, is the oh. largest research group. Oh, thank you. Thank yeah. you for that. Wow. Wow. Chip, and on speaking of MUFON, um, and man, it'd be great to, if Paul could come on, on April 25th to, to the Butler Paranormal Conference. Uh, it's mostly <laughs> it's mostly MUFON, but there's paranormal Crypt, groups, cryptids, crypto, yeah, well. a little oh, bit of everything there. The one in Philadelphia? And one, in, one here no, in Butler. It's, uh, yeah, it's closer Sorry? to Pittsburgh. It's in Butler, which is closer to Pittsburgh, oh. but... Oh, yeah, I've been I've been invited to something in Pennsylvania that weekend. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, I think by, by Philadelphia MUFON chapter. Wow. Uh, is it is it yeah. the twenty fifth? Is the event the twenty fifth? Uh it's that weekend. Wow. Yeah, yeah so that, that might be it then. Wow. Well, let's hope. You know, that'd be that'd be awesome to, to see you, Paul. Yeah. I'll talk to you. That'd be great. Yeah, and if they look, if you have any particular events in that sense that, you know, you, you're really keen on promoting or promoting your being there or being a part of, you can always come back, you know, and, and talk about them, uh, okay. raise awareness. Cool. Because, yeah, yeah, well, that's how we roll, man. You know, we'd like to take care of you. We appreciate the things you're doing for all these different, you know, uh, all, these, all these different sciences, <laughs> you know, businesses. Um 
I, I want to just switch the track for half a second because sure. I'm sure we have a lot of listeners that are trying to get startups, you know, for businesses, maybe tech businesses or software or things of that nature, or even in the entertainment industry. You know, I got a screenplay coming out. We'll talk about that someday. <laughs> See, Paul, now you can hate me. Uh, but, you know, you've been involved in these things and you've done it incredibly um, uh, generous and uh, potent uh, help getting people, you know, with these startups in their foundation to, to change their lives. Um, so just a general question, or just focusing on startups, anybody thinking of startups or, or software, any good advice for them? We got the American dream still. Uh, you know, there's a lot of dreamers in our listenership, including uh, Timmy and I. Mm -hmm. uh, any advice? For somebody with like a startup, is that too general well, it, a question? It's a pretty, yeah, it's a pretty open-ended question. I, I'd say this: um, everybody, from a financial point of view, unless you were smart enough to be born into a trust fund or mm -hmm. have a lot of commercial real estate or some other passive income already, everybody needs a second income because the days are gone when you could do a good job and count on your salary to pay your mortgage or your rent mm -hmm. because a private equity company can buy your company and you and your department can be all stars and you can be let go overnight. There is wow. no more loyalty towards that, an employee. That, so you can't count on a job to pay your expenses. You need to develop a second income and that can be a side hustle. <clears throat> like my father was for UFOs. It can be, you know, an online blog. It can be a podcast. It can be one of a number of things, but you need to take control and of your overall financial well-being with your, if you have a full-time job, that being a component, but some something that if you lose that, you're still okay. So for example, people sometimes people think of startups as I need to get a second mortgage on the house, give up my job and try to grab the brass ring and raise money from venture capitalists. Most people, most entrepreneurs and startups are what I call cash flow startups. They're not looking to raise money. My niece does a lot of knitting before Christmas so that she can sell that on Etsy and have you know, what she considers to be a lavish Christmas and not catch any shit about it. She doesn't want to raise money. She doesn't want to scale. She doesn't want to hire people. So if you think about it, can you convert a passion of yours into $500 a month? Hmm. You know, it's not it's not impossible to think like that. And if so, well, then maybe you could double it or triple it. But for a lot of people, an extra five hundred dollars a month could make a lot of difference. They could invest That's that. They could they could start up their emergency fund, etc. So if they lose their job, they're not really up, you know, shit's creek. So the first thing to do is not only for people who are doing startups, everybody should do some kind of startup. And even if you don't need to do it for the money, it's fun. And it's more exciting if you do something and people will pay you for it. When you raise whatever you produce, a service or a product, to that level. Then, once you decided to do something, you know, there's a great book called The $100 Startup. There's a lot of things you can do. So it's not beyond the reach of anybody. But what I would say is commit yourself to being an entrepreneur and not to your first idea. By wow. and large. Or more likely than not, your first idea will suck and will be met with a great big yawn from the world. 
And for unfortunately, a lot of people come up with an idea, say, oh, it's finally my time to be an entrepreneur. And they spend too much money on a trademark or on some bogus marketing consultant or an investor assistance corporation, <laughs> something of that ilk. And they doesn't go anywhere. And they say, well, I guess being an entrepreneur is not for me. Commit yourself to being an entrepreneur. And that can be somebody who has a nine to five job and does you know, their hobby and turns it into a side hustle at night or on the weekends. Or it could be somebody who quits their job and does this full time for a year. And this idea doesn't work and they go back and work and they try another idea. But always think about doing something for yourself that can augment your income, your current income stream and commit to that and be your own worst or your worst critic so that you say, hey, the current idea I have, that's not going to fly because I can't scale it easily enough. I have to raise too much money. I'm dependent on Chinese factories and they're in turmoil now or whatever the case may be, but commit yourself to the mindset that I can do something besides my job and I don't have to give up my job to do it. All right. Um, I, I want to take into consideration that we have seen just such a large collective of people with dread that say, I'll never be what my father was or my grandfather was. I'll never, I, you know, I'll be taking care of them <laughs> rather than them take care of us. And what's the point of even going on? All I can do is a fast food job or another fast food job. What's the point of even trying? And that's a people I'm trying to talk to because I just it just seems we come across so many of them. It's almost uh, more of a common collective now. Uh, so you're giving them this advice that really focuses on, on finance and nature. Uh, would that be accurate? And if so, for people that have no grasp of finance, any advice for them or make it easier for them to understand what you're saying? Does that question make sense? Uh, well, what I'll say is people get intimidated by the words finance and accounting. And it's just money. You know, accounting is basically how, what bucket do you put things in? What labels do you put on them? Finance is understanding about the flow of money in and out in uncertain, uncertain environments mm -hmm. and managing that and understanding the time value of money. You know, one of the things that people, you know, you can make, there is a, a very slim textbook that I assigned to my students at Pepperdine that's called How to Get Rich Slowly. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> if you can, How to Get Rich Slowly. Because what people can do to retire wealthy, or maybe not retire, but to be wealthy before that long, is to save money in an index fund or exchange-traded fund, which mirrors the stock market. Because a lot of people try to buy individual stocks, mm -hmm. and it's almost impossible because, well, no one has ever really beaten the stock market over the long term. Right. You can cite Warren Buffett and others, but Warren Buffett buys part of the company as it gets on the board of directors. So he's got <laughs> right. to come on the stage. He's yeah, very he successful, but most yeah. people don't have that ability. Yeah. So for most people, all you really need to do is take advantage of tax advantage situations like an employer match on a 401k and put your money in a fund like Vanguard that has very low fees, which is key, and find exchange traded funds because the stock market has an average annual return of around 9.6%. And if you don't think that 9.6% compound interest over the course of decades will make you a lot of money, 
you've got another thing coming because it's almost so powerful that if you can save a lot of money in your 20s, you almost don't need to save any money for the rest of your life because the amount of time that that compound interest snowballs, it's exponential growth. You know, it's like Mm -hmm. the old thing, would you rather have a million dollars or a penny that doubles every day for a month? Well, for most of that month, you're looking pretty good with a million dollars, but at the end of that month, a penny doubled every day for a month is $10 million. Mm -hmm. That's what compound growth is, and that's what compound interest does, especially on investments early in your life, when you just put them in, in, a, in one of these accounts. And then you don't have to worry about this or that stock tanking today or this fund not working well for this month or for this year or even for this decade. All you have to do is put your money in a low-fee fund that mirrors the S&P or the, another stock market index, leave it there, and become wealthy. Wow. So you can really do that in this day and age. Do they still have like prefer? They used to have preferred stocks. I don't know if they still do that. <laughs> I haven't paid attention. Um, <clears throat> you know, that's my that's my father's thing. I let him uh, work on that. But uh, do they still have preferred stocks? You know, uh, and if so, are do they have any advantage over the others, or not? Well, well, preferred stock is is really more a term for a stockholder that has a different class of, of stock in a company. Um, you may be talking about like blue chip stocks. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a lot of adjectives for stocks, but really for most people, I would say, you I mean, you can outperform 95% of stock market investors simply by buying exchange traded funds, which are mutual funds that are broad enough and diversified enough to mirror the overall stock market. That's all you need to do. And it takes 15 minutes a year to reallocate your portfolio to some degree. And like I said, you'll outperform 95% of professional stock managers. All right. One more question before I turn it back over to Timmy. A lot of people are are in the mode of thought, especially the discouraged folks, that if they want a startup, that they really have to think outside of the box. And even though that's a very general question, and you said that the the first idea that comes to mind might generally suck for you and you really have to pay attention to the financial end more than the idea end. Uh, do you think that thinking outside of the box would really help for people that because their passions in it? You know what I mean? No, I think it's better to be inside the box. There's a box for a reason because there's a lot of good stuff in there. And if you go too far outside the box for a business, mind you, mm-hmm. people won't understand what you're doing. So a friend of mine, a former business partner, had a great motto, which was do something basic with a twist. So imagine if you're at a farmer's market and you're walking along and you see somebody with this product that you don't quite understand and he or she has to take a minute or so to explain it to you. That's not going to work. Mm -hmm. But if you see somebody and you know what it is, oh, it's beautiful tablecloths from Provence, France. And you know exactly what a tablecloth is. You don't need to be told how to use it. You're looking at it to see, does it look nice? How much does it cost? So that's a basic with a twist. It's tablecloths that are more pretty than the normal ones that you see. So do something, you know, solve what businesses do. Every successful business solves a problem. So if you can solve a problem that people already know that they have, especially in the terms of a side hustle, you don't have to explain a lot of time with what is it that we do? 
well, we deliver pizza faster or we deliver pizza hotter because we have ovens in the cars or it's just a little bit better or it's all the ingredients are, you know, locally, uh, locally sourced and it's all sustainable, something like that. That's a great way to do a side hustle because you don't have to spend time or, or teach people what you do. Yeah, take the box and make it shine instead of think outside it. Yeah, and there's a reason there's a box. There's there's value in boxes. <laughs> well, I, I love boxes a lot more today. <laughs> thank you, Paul, for that. Uh, Paul Heineck, our honor guest. Uh, Timmy. All right, take a break, guys. It's coming up past the first hour. So. All right, we can do that. How long today? Uh, about four, four, four minutes, roughly. All right, cool. Sound good to you, Paul? Sure. Outstanding. Take you are away. listening to the Supernatural Realm with our guest Paul Heineck on www.wcetfm.com. We'll be right back with more right after this. WCT.FM, your talk station. Trying to get myself ashore for so long, for so long. Listening to the strangest stories, wondering where it all went wrong for so long, for so long. Paranormal Talk Radio, you'll love the new Paranormal Radio app from TalkStream Live. You'll find a great selection of talk shows covering UFOs, ghosts, strange phenomena, and much more. Download the Paranormal Radio app now and start listening to the very best in Paranormal Talk entertainment, including the network you're listening to right now. The Paranormal Radio app, free in Google Play and the iOS App Store. And welcome back to the Supernatural Realm on www.wcet.com. That's 101.7 FM in Columbia, South Carolina, Columbia Talk. We are also on uprntalkradio.com, 107.7 FM down in New Orleans. If they have any questions for Paul, 724-602-2826. That's 724-602-2826. Chip A. Listeners have any questions? The number is seven two four six zero two two eight two six. Chip, are you there, buddy? I sure am, my brother. Wow, what a day we're having! Our honored guest, Paul Heineck, uh, been involved in so many things, but also happens to be <laughs> the son of Jay Allen Heineck, probably best known for Project Blue Book. Um, 
but he, he did so much more than, than that. And he's done things with movies and games and software uh, with that's really impacted all of our lives and, and even has advice on rejuvenation to live longer. Mm-hmm. Me, I'm like, Caligon, take me away. <laughs> Yeah, like God bless Paul, man. You know we're we're rooting for him, and we're so honored to have him. And yes, our brother from another mother, even though all the mothers are embarrassed to admit it. <laughs> yeah, another so, cool thing though, Chip, he he embraces a lot of the things that we talk about here on this show, and kind yeah. of beyond the veil. So it's it's a it's a great thing. Well, he's he is one of us, you know. Yeah. He's he's more one of us than us, you know. Yeah. <laughs> for sure. Think about it. But we, yeah, we welcome him with the greatest love and honor. It's great to have Paul Heineck with us today here on Supernatural Radio. Uh, Paul, welcome back, and uh, thanks for hanging with us through the break. And, yeah, my wife's all excited that, uh, you know, Aiden. <laughs> She'll be, uh, she's still in her eyes, he'll always be little fingered. <laughs> she just, uh, yeah, she wants to meet him someday. But I want to be at least nearby, you know, so. He doesn't steal her or anything. <laughs> anyway, Paul, we welcome you back with the greatest honor. Uh, wonderful to have you on. Uh, Tim, yeah, Hello. Chip, you have another question in regards to his dad or his work? Uh, yeah, I, I, I just really don't know where to start. Um, when, when is the first time? All right, I'm going to be Sigmund Freud here without the sex. <laughs> One of <laughs> Uh, when was the first time you became aware of what a UFO was, you know, and your upbringing and what it meant and how they explained it to you as a kid? Because we have a lot of people who have had experiences or sightings or whatever, whether whether it be UFOs or ghosts or whatever, and their parents say, wow, that's evil or that's nasty or you shouldn't believe that. And, you know, so in that context, we're kind of interested in from that perspective. Uh, I don't remember life without ufos uh the first word i ever said was moon and you know around the house and conversations some of my earliest memories about ufos so it was kind of like mother's milk so i imagine you were a sky watcher then was it like you'd spend nights looking up in the stars and not thinking a little harder than most kids in the neighborhood my father would take us kids and our mom to the observatory and you know astronomers interesting bunch because they mm-hmm. spend a lot of nights observing so my father was very good at sleeping whenever he could wherever he was they need to get catnapped as much as they can uh, um kind of a, another weird question uh both regarding your father and you when you when you went to these observatories or looked up in the sky did he have a fascination with any particular planets in our solar system or our stars outside of the, our solar system or anything like that or things like black holes or neutron stars and same question applies to you. When you looked into space, did you have a particular fascination with, for, say, Saturn, for example, or did he or, or just none of that really apply when you look up into the sky? More kind of a general thing. Uh, I think my father was an equal opportunity observer. There were just so <laughs> many cool things happening in the sky. You know, Saturn's cool, right, for a kid because it's got rings. It's a really unique thing. And, you know, my brother Joel, who lives here in L.A. also, had a really nice telescope and we would look at things and he would show people Saturn, for example. And, you know, just if you've never really looked in a, in a, in a telescope before and you start looking at planets, they're really quite amazing. Uh, and it doesn't take a lot for someone who's never really cared about these things to develop a passion for it. 
you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of eclipses. <clears throat> and in 2017, my friend Greg Gatano and I stayed with our friend Wendy Miner in, in Missouri, and we were in the path of totality, uh, and with my niece Jennifer as well, uh, and Spencer, for the totality of the eclipse, for that total solar eclipse. Oh, no. And, and there were people who had never seen it before, and it is one of the most surreal experiences you can imagine. Even if you don't really care that much about nature or the stars, when you're sitting there on a sunny day in the, <laughs> the middle of the day <laughs> and you see, a, you see a sunset 360 degrees around you and <laughs> birds start chirping and lights start turning on and the temperature drops 15 to 20 degrees, right. it will have an impact on you. It yeah. is just one of the most unearthly things you can ever see in your life. So there's not really, it doesn't take, the bar is pretty low, I think, in terms of astronomy and what could get people excited. Yeah. I know, it's just uh, it's kind of because it was part of your life, you know, looking up at the sky. I had this thing once about King Henry VIII and um, Thomas More, who wrote Utopia, you know, he, he was a counselor to Henry VIII, and they used to look up into the stars in the 1500s, 500 years ago. And talk about the, how they affect your personal humors. So they they were doing astronomy and astrology at the same time in you know fifteen twenty nine. It's kind of fascinating to think, you know. So here's Paul and J. Helen Heineck looking into the sky, and you know, I mean, it just uh, it boosts our own imagination about you know how that experience must uh, be like. Um, did you ever travel with them? I know that you've done work in uh, Europe and Asia in addition to the U.S. here. Uh, did he travel a lot uh, internationally uh, for uh, whatever reason? And did you, and did you particularly like, um, you know, any areas outside of the U.S.? My father traveled more than anybody I've ever met in my life, all over the world. All over and yes, the world. we would go. Uh, one of my favorite trips was my father, my mother, my younger brother Ross, and I, in 1973, spent two weeks on a cruise ship going to see a total eclipse of the sun off the coast of Western Africa. And what made that even cooler was that for two weeks, my family had all of our meals at a table with one other family, and that was Neil Armstrong and his family. Uh, so I got, I got to sit with Neil Armstrong for two weeks, um, oh. and there was a couple of other scientists and astronomers, Neil deGrasse Tyson was on the ship. Oh, that's uh, awesome. Isaac Asimov was on the ship. And Isaac Asimov was asked by these 20-year-old women to give to give him, give them his autograph, and he wrote on their thighs, Isaac Asimov was here. Oh, my God. You're killing me just a little bit. You know, Timmy, too. <laughs> no, you know, but, we're dying inside just a little. Yeah. Chip, I'm not really with it today. I mean, it's great having Paul here, and I, I love the, the, the topics we're having today. But you, as you know, you know, you and I are both, you know, we feel things. Yeah. And uh, that crash at, at uh, Daytona yesterday really oh, yeah. threw me for a loop. Yeah, I just I hope, I just hope Brian's to okay. See you that. Know? Yeah, I stayed away from all the news. Oh, I wish I would have. Yeah, First time I watch a race in years and that happens, I'm like, God dang it. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah, there's another kind of weird correlation, and, and, and not to you know, break the chain of, of storyline here, but because you've been in this kind of, um, these kinds of areas, the UFO and the paranormal and interdimensional, and uh, 
you know, sometimes it makes us a little extra sensitive. Do you ever notice things like that, Paul, or are you just too busy? You notice notice? yourself as being sensitive to things. Uh, It's kind of hard to notice things about yourself. I mean, Mm -hmm. I, I see and feel the world as I do and I don't, I haven't really learned that much about why I see things and, and feel things as I do. I I don't know. That's because you're so busy and successful, you know. That's pretty much what we do. Because <laughs> somebody's got to be the black sheep in the family. I thought, uh, uh, but you know, oh, geez, hanging hanging out with all all these people and going around well, the as, world. As, as a French major, son of an astrophysicist, you're talking to the black sheep right here. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Welcome yeah, you haven't won an Oscar yet. Yeah. Yeah. You, you've only changed billion-dollar industries, but you haven't won an Oscar yet. Yeah, yeah. Welcome to my family, too. See, that's why we're brothers. <laughs> oh boy. Um, yeah, we were, we mentioned something off air, and I I did want to ask you about that because I this is insight into into your father and your family that is something that we you probably wouldn't hear anywhere else, but. He liked telling bad puns. I particularly like bad puns. <laughs> you said you might have a story about that. And I'd just like to hear it, man, because we, we like you and, you know, I, we're brothers. So, you know, yeah, we love, if you're we comfortable love you telling are. stories about it, we like bad puns, too, especially if they're irony in them. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, um, your dad used to tell bad puns. It's like, welcome to our world, you know, kind of. But, uh it's still fascinating. Could you could you tell us a little bit about that, if you wouldn't mind? Well, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you a story. Uh, one night, my father was grading midterms for a highlights of astronomy class that he taught at Northwestern. And I said, hey, Dad, can I take the test? He goes, oh, sure, bozo. So <laughs> I took the test, and I got a B on it. No studying, spending about 10 minutes on the test. So he looks at me, and he thinks, and he says, you know, either you're a little bit smarter or my test is a bit easier than I thought. And I'm pretty sure he changed the test. Uh, so I apologize to those current students at Northwestern. And one of the <laughs> questions had, was multiple choice. And one of the names on there was Tycho Brahe. And I said, come on, Dad, you can come up with a better made-up name than that. <laughs> my dad said, Tycho Brahe is not a made-up name. How could you not know that? I said, well, Dad, I haven't taken your class I've only gotten a B on the exam. I'm sorry. <laughs> so he told me story. Tycho Brahe was originally Danish and was living in Prague, and he was the he was the astronomer for the Holy Roman Emperor. Mm-hmm. And he was an amazing observationalist, and he recorded extremely precise data of planetary motions. He was not great at math, though. But he had a young enterprising assistant by the name of Johannes Kepler, who was a great mathematician. But Kep- but uh, Tycho Brahe wouldn't release the information to him. So one fine night, the Ro- Holy Roman Emperor comes to check out his investment, and they have an official state dinner. Now, I should tell you that Tycho Brahe was a bit of a character and had had his nose sliced off in a duel. Wow. So he had metal nose plates that he would put on, you know, maybe a silver one for a workaday event and maybe a gold one for a fancy ball, you know, as one does. Mm. Um, so he's wearing his nose piece at this official dinner for the Holy Roman Emperor and he's drinking a lot of beer and he has to go to the bathroom. But you don't just get up and tinkle when the Holy Roman Emperor is there. You just wait. Right. So he held it in 
and unfortunately, his bladder burst, and oh. he died. Oh, my. So oh. The, his data then got released, and Johannes Kepler formulated his famous three laws of planetary motion and other things, which really advanced astronomy tremendously. Mm-hmm. So because his bladder burst, that data was released. So my father calls the bursting of Tycho Brahe's bladder, are you ready for this? Sure. A great break for science. <laughs> oh, wow. There's some insight into that. Wow, that, that's, that's a fascinating story. <laughs> uh, if you want to really go down to the depths of the pun bog, mm-hmm. I'll sure. tell you the fabled triple pun. Okay. Ooh, okay, cool. Now, this is going to hurt, and it's going to hurt bad. Okay? <laughs> now, a triple pun is three words, three puns. Now, long thought to be impossible. Galileo, Copernicus, Newton, they all gave up. But my father kept at it, and he cracked the code and came up with a triple pun. And the reason he did that was that our dinner table... My mom had an ironclad rule. If you told three puns, you had to leave the table. <laughs> so, no. If one of us had told two puns, we would tell somebody else and they'd tell it. Now, sometimes <laughs> so my father had to get back to work. Before he, he, had to make a quick, he had to make a quick exit. So he came up with a triple pun so he could go away right away. So here's the triple pun. So there's an astronomer father, naturally, who has sons. And he's going to give them his cattle farm. This is not an awkward setup at all. Okay. So you have an astronomer fun, astronomer father, who's going to give his cattle farm to his son, provided that they call it solar focus. Hmm. So his son say, hey, astronomer father of ours, thank you for giving your cattle farm to us. But why do we need to name it? Solar, why do we, your sons, need to name it Solar Focus? To which the father replies, yes, sons of me, the astronomer, about to receive my cattle farm, who must name it Solar Focus? You must name it Solar Focus because that's where the, are you ready? Sons raise meat. (laughs) 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 The triple pun, baby. Oh my Man. God! I told you it hurt. Oh, that's beautiful. But it hurts in a great way. <laughs> that's a kind of way to put it. <laughs> wow. Yeah. That, wow. Yeah, I. You know, that's that's better puns than we've heard here in a long time, Dave. You can write a book on just your dad's puns, Paul. <laughs> yeah, my father. My father. You know. I, I notice this even in Project Blue Book and other shows. People tend to think of scientists as like a breed apart, mm-hmm. but they are vibrant, warm individuals who just found their calling in life early and, and stayed remained, you know, remained focused on it. My father is a very warm, gregarious guy who people of all stripes really liked being around, and he was not some kind of Vulcan that would go around citing logic all the time. He was a very warm individual with an over-fondness for puns. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
if it may, if it's any consolation, my father's best friend was Dr. Ralph Alpher, who was part of the Big Bang Theory, the original uh, Big Bang Theory. He was the second. Uh, and, yeah, he used to come over and tell really bad puns all the time. <laughs> he, he was like that, you know. And he had this really twisted sense of humor, and it was kind of dry, you know. But would that kind of uh, be like a way to describe your father's sense of humor? A little, little dry, a little wry, <laughs> a little off the mark. Uh, uh, you know, as a son, you never really appreciate your father's sense of humor. So, um, I'll just say that <laughs> That's true. he thought his jokes were really funny. Actually, he had, he had, he had some, he had some pretty good ones too. He actually really did. <laughs> yeah. I got some stories. I can't tell them on air, but yeah, I, I get it though. But you know, it seems like in, in, in the industry that we covered the paranormal and ufology and and contactees and metaphysics and things of that nature spirituality we find so many people that rise to success in our industry especially within the last uh, 10 years or so we're very logically minded to start very dismissive of this stuff but we're thrown into a situation that they couldn't explain away uh, that made them some of the <laughs> the best researchers, you know, the best investigators in our industry because they came from that logically minded place first and then became right brain, you know, in, in, a, in a split second. Uh, and, you know, your, your family has seen a lot of different things. But it seems like uh, even though, you know, you're a fellow black sheep, you know, the, the characteristics are, are similar. A lot of the work that you're doing you know, is very logically minded. I mean, yeah, all the different things with software and business and helping in, in the development of films, you know, like uh, Lord of the Rings and Avatar or games like Halo and Call of Duty. You know, I mean, you're a, you're a guy. Great game. <laughs> um, and uh, what was it? There was a, a couple of things that you did with uh, motion software that I, I did want to ask you about. Um, the motion capture software. Uh, virtual production, the giant studios, uh, virtual right. production, motion capture software. You know, I've tried uh, various different programs with motion capture software. I failed at them, of course, but at least I tried. Motion capture is a different thing. I mean, we've had some movies recently, and I know this is a couple of years beyond where, where you were in this, uh, such as The Irishman uh, or that Will Smith film, Gemini Man or something, where they're changing the age of people. Um, using what I can only imagine would have to be some sort of motion capture software, you know. Um, does that sound like it makes sense? And do you see that in uh, your thoughts about the motion capture going in that direction for cinema? Are you a fan of that stuff? Do you think it's a little too far and weird? Um, you know, being so intimately involved in an industry like that. Well, you know, motion capture is a tool. And it's a tool that allows moviegoers or movie bingers <laughs> to see things that that can't be filmed because they're people that don't exist or an age that doesn't exist so it widens the palette of the creative types behind a movie to tell stories mm -hmm. so i'm all in favor of directors and all the other creative types involved in a movie having as many arrows in their quiver as possible to tell the story in the richest visual way that they can. Now, you can have movies that are overladen with visual effects, 
Uh, but you can have also movies that use visual effects and blend things in. Like, for example, you mentioned Lord of the Rings. Mm-hmm. For my money, Gollum, who was a CG or computer graphic character mm-hmm. in a live action movie, was the first really successful instance of that. You don't right. have to go much farther back than that to like Jar Jar Binks to see something that wasn't really successful. Mm-hmm. So when you watch Lord of the Rings and you watch Gollum, and if you notice in The Hobbit, Gollum's eyes are a lot prettier. He got some contact lenses. When you watch Gollum in Lord of the Rings, it's not taking you out of the story. It's not making you say, oh, that was mocap, or that was this, or that was that. (laughs) It's just now you're just kind of mesmerized because your mind is telling you that creature can't really exist, and yet I'm seeing him integrated in a seamless way in the environment, and very quickly you just accept it and you say, well, that's Gollum, and you go along with the story which is what the movie wants you to do, because it doesn't really want to draw attention to any one of the elements. Like, if the clothing is off, you're going to notice that. Right. If the visual effects are too much or too poorly done, you'll notice that. You want all these things to sort of blend in, and you just go along for the ride without singling out any particular element. Yeah. Does it help that your brother is also in visual effects when you're involved with this Giants uh, Studios uh, thing? Was he a, a kind of a, a, a part of this at all? Or was that a totally separate entity that you both happen to be, you know, really working with motion capture software in one yeah. realm or another? Well, it certainly doesn't help to have uh, a guy as smart as my brother, Joel, mm. who knows <laughs> every technical aspect gotcha. of filmmaking uh, and especially <laughs> being visual effects. Yeah, that doesn't hurt at all. Yeah. Um, and we've worked together on various projects and it's just... You know, Joel is an amazing guy because he is so smart, but he's also so calm under pressure, which is a really key attribute in making movies because, well, there's a lot of pressure. A lot of and pressure, so yeah. He creates this attitude, and I've talked with hundreds of people that have worked with him that say that he's just a genius, and he's so calm and so easy to get along with that people love working with him. Well, he's done some of the, you mentioned the movies that he's been nominated for or won for in the Oscar yeah. categories yeah. Uh, for visual effects. And they were three of the best movies that we've ever seen. Chip, <laughs> Chip I've, watched yeah. Every, yeah. I've watched every Lord of the Rings movie, and they are phenomenal. They are phenomenal. And if you think phenomenal. about it, go, he's right, you know. And it doesn't take it because we've seen bad CGI, too. And sometimes we see bad CGI, but the rest of the movie's so good, or the actors in it are so good that you, you'll either let it go <laughs> or won't be bothered by it. But there are also some CGI movies that are so poorly done. Obviously, they don't have anything to do with either one, uh, you know, uh, Paul here or his brother, <laughs> obviously. Then you just go, oh, come on now. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I don't know if you, because you look, you're a very busy man, Paul Heineck, and and I don't know if you have a chance to watch or binge, you know, movies or things with, uh, like The Irishman, that, you know, we're talking about this new aging thing that kind of works for some people, kind of doesn't work for others. I I watched it. I I thought they did a fairly good job. I don't know if you've seen it yet. Do you have time to watch movies? Uh, Some, and I, I did watch The Irishman, and I thought it was very good, and, you know, I saw the interview mm-hmm. with the three main actors right. and, and Scorsese talking about it. One of the things they talked about was, <laughs> you know, it's not just technology. It's the actors mm-hmm. as they're playing different ages, you know, they had to think about what age am I and yeah. how will I walk up the stairs? How yeah. will I get up from a chair? 
Yeah, they so had to look taller and walk faster and talk faster if they were playing the younger. How old they are and act accordingly. So maybe in the morning, they may film a scene where they're 40 and maybe later that day at 75. So they have to change the whole body language to really sell it to the audience. Yeah. Well, we don't really think about stuff. Like, I mean, that's pretty intricate stuff, let alone that they have these cameras everywhere for the age processing that they were talking about. I think they had to put dots on their face or something, you know, like the football players for a Madden game do or things of that nature. But they also had all these new cameras to make this happen. So it affected their blocking, you know, where they stand, where they film, <laughs> which cameras to look into, which cameras not to look into. And again, the aging process where if you're, you know, if they're in their 70s in real life and they're playing people in their 40s, they have to talk faster. They have to stand up more. They, everything has to be quicker. All their emotions have to be quicker. So they appear younger. That's a lot of stuff that, you know, nobody really talks about. And, and the, but, you know, it also ups the game because they are so aware of this uh, motion capture software uh, or the, the, this new aging process and all this new development and technology that it becomes a part of their character, in essence. Uh, did you get that from that interview, too? Especially being so intimate in the motion uh, graphic software industry, let's say. Well, there's every movie that's well done has a whole lot of thinking that's much more complex and involved than most moviegoers ever think about, because they just go and see a movie, and if it holds together, they just say, yeah, I had a really good emotional response to that. I, it made me feel happy, sad, terrified, whatever, and they move on. But to to make it convincing like that, there are so many considerations like how does a person at this age react? Or like when we worked on Avatar, you know, we had actors of normal size and we did motion capture with them, and now we turn them into, you know, much more powerful Navi who are nine or ten feet tall. Well, right. more to it than just making their arms longer. They're gonna be so much more powerful. So when they jump and land, it's a whole lot different. So you have to make that biomechanically accurate. So there's a lot of secret sauce in our software and for other motion capture that's much more complicated than just capturing the data of the joints that are, the skeletal joints are moving. It's much more difficult to solve or translate those to the target skeleton that you've made. That target skeleton has to understand the biomechanics of that other body. And there's a whole lot of smart people that have to figure that out. Yeah. And I may be misremembering this, but I don't think so. Because when the Avatar movie was just coming out and the trailers were leaking, you know, and the buzz was building up, there was this great unknown. How does somebody take a film like Titanic, you know, which has like the... Um, you know, it's not very, it's more people laden than effects laden, and it, it transitioned into a movie like Avatar, which is, uh, I, I mean both really, about as people plus effects laden as you could combine. It was a new thing for us, especially for James Cameron, and the buzz was tremendous, but there was still that great unknown. You didn't know if this movie was going to really be successful or not, and it ended up tremendously successful. Um, did, were you a, a part of that kind of fear of the unknown between the time when the movie was the buzz was starting and the film came out into finally understanding how successful that uh, movie ended up and, and how did that feel being a part of that team? Well, yeah, we didn't know how Avatar would do because there was no real source material for it. 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, Jim Cameron's amazing because he really did Titanic because he wanted mm-hmm. someone to fund his going down in the bottom of the ocean. And wow. what oh, that's he right. ended up making at that point the, the best selling movie, you know, the most, uh, the most biggest box office movie of all time, just because it was sort of his hobby, not because he wanted to make the best selling movie of all time. And then he'd wanted to make Avatar for 15 years, but the technology hadn't caught up. And when other pieces came together, and when he saw our motion capture technology, he said, now is the time. And I remember seeing some some footage before the movie came out, and it didn't look that good. And it didn't seem like it was going to be the steamroller that it was. But one of the things, you know, Jim Cameron is just an amazing, ta- amazingly talented guy, which is pretty clear. One of the things he does, I think if people don't think about so much, like Avatar, for example, it's a 3D movie. Now, you don't have like spears and things coming at your head. There's not that kind of gimmicky 3D. And it's mm-hmm. real D 3D, which is a very high quality right. 3D. Mm-hmm. But in some scenes, there is no 3D. Mm-hmm. And so it gives your eyes a break. In other scenes, it's pulling you into Pandora. Mm-hmm. So it's this much more immersive feel to it. But he's also very good at pacing so that you have like this, it builds you up to this real high point and then lets you down and then builds you back up again so you can take a breath. And so many movies today are just really frenetic and sort of like Miami Vice paced and they're just, you know, steady cam and just so frenetic the whole time that you can never really relax. But I think Jim Cameron and his editors are much better at creating that pacing that sort of takes you along for a ride and creates a more and more increasingly taught narrative as you go along. Chip, we now, got, I did see we got, something where they did... We got four minutes. Okay, where they did address that fear. You see Jim Cameron worrying about the differences, you know, between the high spec and the low spec, you know, with the 3D and the, the effects and everything. So glad to see it was so successful. I'm glad you're watching movies. I'm playing games that you developed. <laughs> They're awesome, like Halo and Call of Duty. And Halo is back, by the way. You know, <coughs> just saying there's a master collection now that you get in, like, Steam or Humble Bundle. Uh, we've got a very limited amount of time, uh, so we need, need to know if people want to, you know, to, uh, contact you, talk to you, um, uh, or take your courses at Pepperdine. <laughs> we got a push for donations too, by the way, before they okay. close it up. Okay. Well, uh, where can people find you and information about you and events you'll be at and uh, speeches you're making and the things that you're doing and upcoming events and stuff? I guess maybe my Twitter account. I don't really have much presence in social media but i have a twitter account which is my name and when i think about it i'll mention like upcoming conferences and the like okay cool so twitter at paul heineck yep yeah right. yeah and we may see him butler april 25th yeah he may or he'll be yeah, in, right. at least he'll be in pennsylvania yeah on yeah that day. yeah, yeah. Just good enough. Yeah. Heineck, by the way, for those uh, who, who don't have it in front of them, it's H-Y-N-E-K, Paul Heineck, uh, H-Y-N-E-K. So at Paul Heineck on Twitter, you can find out about upcoming events. Anything important for you, our brother, you're more than welcome to come back and, and uh, talk about them, you know, um, make the people aware of where you're going to be. We'd be more than happy to do that with you. Timmy? Yeah, we got a um, – we – Got to push for donations here. Uh, I know our listeners may or may not donate to, to this network. Uh, last month was kind of kind of low, and uh, so you know we love talking. We love the shows that we we have on here. And uh, if anybody wants to donate or become a late nighter, uh, 
They can go to the website at www.wcetfm.com. That's www.wcetfm.com. And Michael's going to be talking to, uh, let me get his name up here. Okay. Um, While you're doing that, since you're talking about donations, anybody that donates $100 or more gets a tarot reading from Chip Reichenthal. That name rings a bell to me, Timmy. Yeah. Uh, we'll take very good care of him. Promise. Michael's, Michael's right. going to have Terry Lovis. They're going to talk about, I guess, UFOs, um, the UFO phenomena. I'm not exactly uh, sure. But yeah. Surely the night for that. Hey? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for, for sure. So. Wow. And of course, Paul Heineck, our honored guest. Uh, God bless you, our brother. Uh, truly, brother, the way more successful brother. We love you, and you're always welcome back. We hope you come back on with us. Um, if you if you can stay on with us for maybe an extra minute after we're off, we'd love to have you stay. And if you can't, we'll understand because you're a very busy man. Timmy? And don't forget, um, Saturdays, 4 to 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 to 5 p.m. Central, we're on UPRNTalkRadio.com on Saturdays. So if you missed this show, be sure to tune in to UPRN Talk Radio yeah, they'll, on Saturday. You'll be hearing it Saturday. Yeah. Good night, everybody. Yeah, thanks for listening. We love y'all. Thank you, Paul Heineck. We love you, too. Good night, everybody. Like a small boat on the ocean Sending big waves into motion Like how a single word can make a heart open I might only have one match, but I can make an explosion And all those things I did